Well, last week, we spent some time talking about the Bible, which I guess isn't that shocking because this is a church after all. Talking about the Bible is kind of a normal thing to do, isn't it? We talked about the Bible. I think the primary point was the Bible is not about me. The Bible is not about us. The Bible is about God. It's, it's his book. It says the things that he wants it to say, that he wanted it to say when it was written. In the Bible, there are a lot of stories. In fact, narrative, story. I don't know if I'm getting some feedback here. Stories are 75% of, of the text in the Bible. So I think God knew when this was being put together, you know, the way he had made us, stories would resonate with us. There's something that we remember. These stories, though, and we talked about this again last week, these stories are things that they're not, they're not there to record history. You know, they're, they're things that historically happened, but the purpose of writing it down wasn't history. It was theology. You know, there's a story here, and we need to dig into this story, and we need to understand what does this story mean? What does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about Jesus and how I'm supposed to relate to him? And the most significant thing in most of the stories in the Bible is the dialogue. You know, it's the people talking to each other. So often when you take a narrative, especially in the Old Testament, but, but somewhat in the New Testament too, you take, that, you take that narrative, you take that story, and you pull the dialogue out of it, and you examine that dialogue. And usually there's tension between people and how that tension gets resolved, you know, when it's brought to the very end and the plot resolves in that story, that tells you, oh, this is what I was supposed to learn about God from that. So we thought, as, as Brett was talking a minute ago, it would be really interesting then, these are all dot pieces of dialogue. In the New Testament, the last things that Jesus said, the last phrases that he said when he was on earth, when his ministry was coming to an end, let's look at each one of these things and let's figure out what these things mean, you know, if these were the last things he wanted to leave with us, there's got to be some significant stuff there. And so I'm really excited to kick this off this morning and to think about what these, what these seven things that he said are going to mean to us. We're going to start, though, as, as Brett said, with today you'll be with me in paradise. The, the piece uh, of text that this comes from is in Luke 23, um, what we're going to do, and again, kind of going back to what we talked about last week, you've got these different translations of, of the New Testament, of the, of the whole Bible. You've got the NASB being the word for word and the message being the other end of the spectrum, this thought for thought paraphrase. Generally, what I do when I study something like this is I start with, I start with the message. I want to make sure I'm going the right way here. So I'm going to start with something that's a paraphrase. I'm going to read the whole story. I'm going to get the gist of it. I'm going to get the context. Then I'm going to go back over to NIV or NASB where you can look at individual words and figure out what they mean. But you're doing that in the overall context. And so that's essentially what we're going to do this morning. So we're starting with the message, and I'm just going to read through this, this piece of the story, and then we're going to talk about it. Um, Context-wise, if we think about what, what was going on before this, and you can go back to Luke, you know, 21, 22. It's a story that's fairly familiar to us. You know, Jesus had been accused uh, by the Jewish leadership essentially of, you know, sedition, of undermining the government, of, of not paying taxes to Caesar, of, of not thinking that Caesar was God, which would have been an accurate thing. But Jesus hadn't really done any of these things. The Jewish leaders just, 
he made them look bad. They wanted him out of the way. You know, he was, I've heard him referred to as the ultimate curve wrecker. You know, he wrecked the curve and the leadership wanted him gone. So you've got this situation, then he gets taken before Pontius Pilate, who was the the Roman governor of Judea at the time. Pilate's like, yeah, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. He sends him to Herod, who was the Jewish king uh, there at the time. Herod questioned him, didn't get anything, sent him back to Pilate. But the voice of the people was so loud, they were like, we've got to crucify this guy. And Pilate said, I don't see anything wrong with him, but you guys take him. It's obvious that this was a battle that he was not going to win, even though he was the one in charge. He knew that the people wanted this guy dead, and so he allowed it to happen. And that was, that's where we pick up this story. Two others, both criminals, were taken along with him for execution. When they got to the place called Skull Hill, they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Dividing up his clothes, they threw dice for them. The people stood there staring at Jesus, and the ringleaders made faces, taunting, he saved others, let's see him save himself. The Messiah of God, the chosen, ha. The soldiers also came up and poked fun at him, making a game of it. They toasted him with sour wine, so you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Printed over him was a sign, this is the king of the Jews. And that sign was the accusation against him. They would put a sign on the cross that said, this is why this person is being executed. And that was what he was being executed for, according to the sign, being the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging alongside cursed him. Some Messiah you are, save yourself, save us. But the other one made him shut up. Have you no fear of God? You're getting the same as him. We deserve this, but not him. He did nothing to deserve this. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. He said, don't worry, I will. Today you'll join me in paradise. By now it was noon. The whole earth became dark, the darkness lasting three hours, a total blackout. The temple curtain split right down the middle. Jesus called loudly, Father, I place my life in your hands. And then he breathed his last. So when you read stories like this, you know, there's this principle of using scripture to interpret scripture. You always want to read something like this, and then you want to go in, into the Bible. You know, generally, you can look at footnotes and find the references to other things in the Bible that are similar. So you've got similar stories in other Gospels. You've got other stories that relate to this story that we have to look at if we're going to figure out what we're supposed to learn from this story. Uh, what's interesting about this is when you look at the other four Gospels, um, the, the whole today you will be with me in paradise isn't there. And I find that to be very interesting. In Matthew, Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. It's reasonable to think that Matthew was there and saw this happen in person. And what he recorded was the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. So he refers to the fact that these robbers are there, that they're crucified on either side, but this is the only thing we're told about them. Uh, Mark, who was not a disciple, and we don't know whether he was there or not, whether he was an eyewitness or not, uh, says those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. So both of these guys, whether they were there in person or not, um, they both just say both criminals insulted him, and they don't refer to this conversion-ish experience that we see in Luke. Uh, and then John, who we know was there because he gets referred to when he, he says, you know, 
to, to John, I want you to take care of my mother, which would have been a very Jewish thing to do. And, and John was then responsible for her as she aged. Um, John would have been there, we know that. And John tells us even less about this. Uh, whether or not he thought this was a significant thing or not. Um, he just said there they crucified him with two other men, on e- one on either side and Jesus in between. He doesn't even say that they're criminals. So he gives us even less information. I think it's possible uh, as you read this story, if, if you just think about the dynamics, I mean, think about I'm, I'm there, I'm there and Jesus is dying on the cross and these guys are talking What's happening? You know, is it possible that Matthew and Mark were there and they were watching this scene unfold, but at some point they're like, I can't, I can't take this anymore, and they left. You know, this being the thing that Jesus said right before he said, it is finished. So this is the last thing. I mean, this is the last few minutes of Jesus' life on earth. It's reasonable then to think that maybe these robbers were saying, and it's identified in Matthew there, they they were both insulting him. Not one of them, but both of them were. So maybe they were early on. Maybe Matthew left and didn't see this final statement. Uh, Maybe Mark wasn't there and was recording this information secondhand. We do believe that Luke was recording the information secondhand, but again, we don't really know that for sure. So what about other related passages? There is, there is a good parable that Jesus tells that I think is, is very closely related to the story that we're talking about today. So we want to read through that, understand that, and then we're going to go back to the text, look at it in the NASB, and kind of parse through it and figure out what's going on. So Matthew 20, 1 through 16, um, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like... When you read that, you should say, wait a minute, it started with four. It starts with, you know, when something says therefore or and or something like that, and you're starting a chapter with a, with a connective, right? You better say, wait a minute, something, this is dependent on something that was said before, and I need to go back and I need to figure out what that is. The very last verse of, of chapter 19, but many who are first will be last, and the last verse. So the context of this passage is this, that Jesus had been met by who's called the, a guy who's called the rich young ruler in the Bible. The rich young ruler comes to him and says, what do I need to do basically to get to heaven? And he says, follow the commandments. And the guy says, well, I've, I've done that. That's what I've done since I was young. And Jesus said, well, then you need to go sell everything you own and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and the guy left because he just couldn't bring himself to do that. And Jesus goes on, talks about that a little bit. And then Peter and the disciples are there. And Peter says, look, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, and, and understand, you will be rewarded because you've left everything for following me. But then he says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So he's talking about this, this situation with the rich young ruler. He's talking about what he just told Peter, that you're going to be rewarded in the life to come, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So what, what does that mean? Now he tells a story. He tells a parable to explain what that means. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he'd agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. 
And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing in the marketplace, idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever's right I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. So beginning with the last group. When, he hired, when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. And if you look in the footnotes in your Bible, it'll tell you a denarius was about a day's wages. So they received a day's wage, even though they were there for about the last hour of the workday. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. So he goes back and says that again. This is the meaning of what I was saying. You know, there's going to be people that, that accept me early in their life and they're going to be followers of Jesus all their life. There's going to be people that accept me at the very last minute. I'm going to give them the same reward. And... He can do it because he's God. It's up to him what he does. You know, and he's saying, I want to be generous to this person. What's it to you if I want to be generous to this person? I'm God. I can do what I want. And so that really is, I think that story is fairly obvious what it means to us and then fairly obvious how it connects to, to what we're talking about with today you'll be with me in paradise. So we go back to Luke 23 And now we're going to take Luke 23 in the NASB, and we're going to go through and look at at how this parses out and what we learn from it. The thing that I want to do, though, is to pull out, like I talked about earlier, pull out the dialogue. And in this story, the dialogue is really, and and the dialogue between people and the tension it creates is going to tell us what this story means. Um, as a good example of this, if you go back to the Old Testament and you talk about David and Goliath, we talk about the David and Goliath story. I mean, that's, that's beyond just a biblical story. It's, it's like a foundation of Western culture. Everybody understands what David and Goliath means, even if they haven't read it in the Bible. But if you pull the dialogue out of the David and Goliath story, the story isn't actually about David and Goliath. It's about David and Saul, The dialogue is between David and Saul, and you see that David trusts God and that Saul doesn't trust God. And Saul's looking to do this on his own power. And so the dialogue in these stories is a big deal. So to pull the dialogue out of this, you have one criminal saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. You have the other criminal saying this, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So 
you've got two people saying very different things, and what this creates is tension in the story, and you're thinking, how is this going to get resolved? When the tension in the story gets resolved, that's going to tell us what it is we're supposed to learn about God from this story. So let's observe some things about what each of these guys is saying. We, we don't know their names. We don't know their crimes. We don't know anything about these guys. They are criminal number one, criminal number two. We don't know anything beyond that. So you really have to kind of dig and think about just putting yourself in that situation. What, what are they motivated by? What is it they're really saying? You know, are you not the Christ? You could look at that and say, well, that's kind of a statement of faith. He's saying Jesus is the Messiah. I don't think that's really what he was getting at here. Um, that, that accusation was written above Jesus on the cross. You know, they had put the crown of thorns on him. They had put the purple robe on him. They were spitting on him. They were mocking him. They were making fun of him saying, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. But he really, they really didn't believe it. I don't think this criminal is making a statement of faith. I think this is a statement of sarcasm coming from him. Very consistent with what we see in the other Gospels that the, you know, the criminals are heaping abuse on him. So what is he asking for here? What he really wants is to have his own neck saved, right? He wants to get off the cross. He's saying, Jesus, hey, if you're the Messiah, get us down from here. Save us. You know, what he wants is mercy. He wants to get, he doesn't want to get what he deserves. He's there getting the result of what he deserves. What does the other criminal say, though? I think when you really dig into this, he is making, he's not making a request for mercy. He's not saying to Jesus, save me, is he? He's saying, you know, he's criticizing the other criminal. Don't you realize we indeed are suffering justly. We're here getting the justice that we deserve. This guy doesn't deserve it, but we deserve it. He's not asking Jesus to take him down off the cross. He, he knows he's going to die, I think. He's saying, look, I'm getting what I deserve, Jesus. I'm not asking you to save me. I'm just asking you to remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. So there's, there's two different things here. Justice, mercy, then there's grace, right? This is a spectrum. I think of it kind of as a spectrum. Justice is getting what you deserve. You know, you're driving 60 and a 30, and the cop pulls you over, and he gives you a ticket. You just got what you deserved, right? Mercy is you don't get what you deserve. You still deserve it, but you don't get it. So the cop pulls you over. He gives you a warning. That's mercy, right? Grace is something altogether different, and, and this is you get what you don't deserve. And I think of it a little bit more like this. You know, justice and mercy are the things that we expect. These two guys on the cross, they were, you know, one of them said, have mercy. You know, get me down off the cross. The other one, the one that actually was saved in this situation, right, he was asking really for justice, so he wasn't expecting anything from Jesus. He was just saying, remember me. Don't forget about me. Remember that, that I hung here on the cross beside you, and I defended you when this guy slandered you. Um, but grace is something completely different. 
I don't think this is what this guy was expecting. I don't think that, that what Jesus said to him is what he expected Jesus to say. So t- resolving the tension in this situation then is Jesus' response. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So now we take this statement and we pull it apart and we figure out what it's saying. Truly I say to you, this is a, a bit of a formula in the New Testament. And you see up there this, this statement, amen, lego, in the Greek. So when we say amen at the end of a prayer, this is the same word, truly, that the way it's translated in the NASB. So he's saying, when he says, truly I say to you, hey, this is important, listen up, I'm going to say something important. This is then the last time that Jesus will say this on earth. So he's saying, pay attention, I'm going to say something important. He says this thing, truly I say to you, 32 times in the book of Matthew, 13 times in Mark, Luke, John. He uses this formula a lot. And every time he used it when he was talking in the Gospels, he's saying, hey, I'm going to say something important here. Pay attention. This is going to matter. And then he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise is exactly what we think it is when you look in the Greek, paradisios. It's, it's a paradise. It's a garden. Uh, it's a Persian word meaning a garden. And we would understand that that's Eden. You know, this is today you're going to be with me back in Eden, back the way things were supposed to be. So a really, really cool statement This is the definition of the last minute. I mean, this guy was there literally on the cross. We know that Jesus is is at the point of death, that he dies maybe minutes, maybe hours after this. We know that this is right towards the end of the things that he's saying. We know that this criminal is going to die as well. And everything that we would believe is that both of these criminals died on the cross beside Jesus So the very definition of the last minute in terms of the parable that we talked about a minute ago. So was this the response that the criminal expected? I think when when the first criminal is asking for mercy, get us down off the cross, I don't really think he was expecting that. I think that was just more heaping of abuse. Um, As far as the second criminal, I don't know that it was what he expected either. You know, he expected to be killed, to be executed by the government for the crimes he had committed. And he basically admitted that there on the cross. We're suffering justly. We, we did this. Grace is not something that he would have expected, I don't think at all. And why don't we hear from the first criminal again? I kind of went down a rabbit trail when I was thinking about this. When Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise to the second criminal... Why doesn't the first criminal say, hey, hey, wait a minute. Why don't you remember me when you, when you reach your kingdom too? You know, why does he not do that? And I think this goes back again to something that we talked about a little bit last week, that, that grace offends us. This, what, what this second criminal, what, what the first criminal saw was the second criminal being given grace you know, ridiculous, outrageous grace. He, did, he deserved to die. He had just admitted he deserved to die. And all he asked of Jesus is, remember me. And when Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, you know, what, what is the reaction of the first criminal? He's surprised, he's shocked. What, what is this guy talking about? 
you know, this guy doesn't deserve to go to heaven. He's here dying for his crimes. That doesn't make any sense. You know, I, I think grace offends us because it, it doesn't seem fair. One thing, that I, one thing that I did this week, funny to admit this, but um, anybody heard of ChatGPT? So ChatGPT is an artificial intelligence online that you can go and you can chat with and ask it questions, ask it to write things. And I, I've, I've been on this mission the last couple of weeks since I found it to, to try and find a way to stump this thing, to try and find a way to confuse it. So I was asking it lots of questions this week about, you know, what, what is justice? What is mercy? What's the difference between mercy and justice? What's the difference between mercy and grace? And I'm, I'm kind of honestly surprised at how good its answers were. I thought, I know I'm going to confuse it now. I'm going to ask it, why does grace offend us? And it had a really good answer. <laughs> so, so we're just going to read some of this. I can't see that, so I'm going to read it from up here. The concept of grace can be offensive to some people for a few reasons. It challenges our sense of justice. Grace means receiving something we do not deserve. This can be difficult to accept because we often believe people should only receive what they've earned or deserve. So moving on to number two, it exposes our own limitations. Grace means admitting we're not in control of everything in our lives. We may be tempted to believe we're in control of our fate and success is due to our own efforts. Grace can remind us that we're not as self-sufficient as we thought and need help from others, including God. And it requires vulnerability. Receiving grace means acknowledging our own flaws and weaknesses. This can be difficult because it requires us to be vulnerable and admit that we're not perfect. It can be humbling to accept grace because it means letting go of our pride and ego. So I think a pretty good answer coming from a computer, right? Uh, I haven't stumped it yet. I'm going to keep trying. So is is it possible then that... Maybe the first criminal, you know, he, he, even in this dire situation that he was in, he just wasn't willing to let go of his pride and his ego. He wasn't willing to say, this is something that I need. And I think you see in the second criminal, you know, a willingness to admit it. When we look at what we see in, in the other gospels, we see that it said both criminals were heaping abuse on Jesus. And... I think it's possible that they were, they were early on, and that this second criminal, you know, he would have been on the cross when Jesus was saying things like, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, and he would have thought, what? Are you kidding? That's ridiculous that somebody would be hanging on the cross, executed, when he knew, I mean, he said, I know this guy's innocent, he knew he was innocent, everybody there probably knew he was innocent. But he would have seen Jesus forgiving these people while he's still hanging on the cross. And, you know, maybe that was a conversion experience for him. Maybe this statement that he makes, you know, he's like, I've changed my mind. And he's telling the first criminal, look, this guy, we're, we're getting what we deserve. But this guy, he didn't deserve this. And then he makes that statement, Jesus, remember me. Don't forget about me. And then Jesus makes this ridiculous, crazy statement of grace at the end. And I think that's what we get out of this story. You know, this is, this is officially 
the last minute of this guy's life. And it's very clear from the story, he doesn't deserve grace. But Jesus gives it to him anyway. I had a, well, I have a friend, I should say. And several years ago, we got on this topic of, you know, Jesus of God, of, of salvation. And he said, you know, you just, you don't know what I've done. You know, I just can't accept it. And I've thought about that so much over the years. You don't know what I've done. It, it really isn't about what you've done. That is, why is that so hard to accept? You know, because it feels, it feels like a free lunch, doesn't it? It feels like something we know we don't deserve it. That's the point of grace, that we don't deserve it. You know, that was the point we talked about last week, that it, it's outrageous that, that God would, you know, give us this thing that we don't deserve. But that's the point of grace. And I think my friend, what I would tell him now, if I had another, uh, another opportunity to talk to him, you know, it, it's not about what you did. Maybe, maybe what you did is really bad. I don't know. I don't know what he did. You know, I think he was speaking in general terms just the way I've lived my life. You know, I can't let go of that. I know I've done wrong. I know I deserve justice. But I'm here to tell you, it's not about what you've done. It's not about what you said. It's not about the fact that you can't fix it. It's not about the fact that it's the last minute. If it's the very last minute, And you say to Jesus, you throw yourself on Jesus and you say to him, remember me. You know, this criminal, he didn't didn't understand theology. He didn't understand all of what was going on in in Jesus' life. He just made this last-ditch attempt and he said something to Jesus and Jesus gave him grace. And Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. You can have the same thing. The same thing. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've said. It just doesn't matter. I know it feels like it does, but it doesn't. If you go to Jesus, he'll say, today you'll be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father, the only response that we can have to this kind of crazy grace that you've given us is worship. Worship is just our natural response where we realize what you've done. We realize that we don't deserve it, that we can't deserve it. We could never deserve it. We're never going to reach the end of the line. And we've thanked you for this before. We'll thank you for it again. We just thank you for this generosity to us that you've given us your word, that you help us to know who you are, that you want us to know who you are. And that you're willing, you're willing to give us this grace. You're willing to give us everything that we don't deserve. And we thank you for that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.